I'm very glad to see this morning that you all survived Thanksgiving with whatever that may have brought for you. I also hope that you had a chance to enjoy Thanksgiving. I know that we certainly did in our family. Uh, My mom loves to bake. I'm very grateful for that. She made no less than eight desserts that I was happy to sample each one, not all at once. It did take some time, but I was eventually able to do that. And as I've shared with you before, I run lots of times so that I can eat. And that's one of the things that we experience at Thanksgiving. So I don't know what your Thanksgiving was like. But I hope that it was good. I hope that it was great. And now that Thanksgiving has officially come and gone, we are, of course, now turning our attention immediately towards Christmas. And we're not the only ones doing that. I mean, no, you don't even hardly get your plate cleaned off with Thanksgiving. And we're on to Christmas with Black Friday. And now we've got Cyber Monday coming up. Everywhere you turn, you're hearing commercials going on for Christmas right now. There's Christmas music and carols and decorations are in full swing getting your Christmas tree, everything, again, full swing to immediately get to Christmas. And it's not just our culture that's getting ready for Christmas. We are also getting ready for Christmas here in the church. Every year, specifically, we come and we spend some time in preparation of getting our hearts ready for the coming of Christ among us. And we call this time Advent. Advent literally refers to the coming of someone or something that is significant. And for us, that significant one is Christ himself. So the Advent is the time of the year that we use to focus on getting ready for the coming of Christ, specifically at Christmas, but also in our hearts for the second coming of Christ for whenever that may occur. And today is week number one in Advent as we begin the journey towards Christmas. Now, as we come together through this series in Advent this year, we're going to take some time to look specifically at what it means to search for Jesus. We're going to look at a number of biblical characters who, for different reasons, were searching for the Christ child. And again, for different reasons, but hoping that as we look at those characters and why they were seeking out Christ, it will encourage us in our own journeys to help us think, why are we searching out for Christ as well? And I'm really grateful throughout this series uh, for the thoughts of Adam Hamilton in particular and some of the thoughts he offers around what it means to be searching for Christ at this time of the year. Now, I will say to you, this is going to be a different Advent series than what we normally do. If you've been with us at all in the past, usually we take those events leading up to the birth of Christ to look at, and then we celebrate the birth of Christ at Christmas. So we look at things like the prophecies that came first, or the Annunciation to Mary, or Mary going to visit her cousin Elizabeth, or maybe Joseph's response to the dream that he had about being the father of Jesus, the earthly father. Uh, Maybe we think about the Magnificat, maybe think about that journey to Bethlehem, all of these kinds of things. And that's good. It's great to look at those kinds of things. But oftentimes what we do then is we look at those events, then Jesus is born. And then for most of us, that week after Christmas, we take off somewhere, we go somewhere, we do whatever we need to do. We come back for the new year and we immediately launch into a new sermon series. And that's great. Except that in Scripture, there are a number of stories, a number of Christmas stories that happen after Jesus is born that we never actually get to. So this year, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the story that comes chronologically the farthest away, that Christmas story that's chronologically the farthest away from the birth of Jesus. We're going to start with that today, which involves Herod, and we're going to work our way back so that over the next couple of weeks, we'll look at the Magi, we'll look at Anna and Simeon, and we will look at the shepherds. And we're going to do that working our way back so that again, by the time we get to Christmas Eve, we will again celebrate the birth of Christ, except this time it's starting with those Christmas stories that happen after his birth and working our way back. So as we begin to do that, we're going to start this morning with King Herod. And it's interesting if you think about this guy, King Herod, 
Think about the Christmas songs, the Christmas carols that you are most familiar with. And if you start to do that, I can guarantee you, you are not going to think of any that have anything to do with Herod. You don't think of any Christmas carols or famous songs in which Herod is a prominent figure. At least for me, I've never heard of one of those, sto- those songs being sung. And it's for really, really good reason. If you li- listened to all of the scripture that was shared this morning, this is frankly an awful, horrible story. It is a story that most of us actually would prefer to forget about. It is not Christmassy at all. This is not the kind of stuff you put on a Christmas card. Everything was not silent that night. In fact, in this account, we hear of murder. We hear of children being ripped out of their mother's arms. This is not cozy, feel-good stuff. You don't just sit there with your feet propped up by the fire with the chestnuts roasting. That is not the kind of story that this makes us feel like. So what is it about? What is going on here? And specifically, how does it help us at Christmas to connect and identify with God? Well, in order to best fully understand the biblical text, it's important that we ask ourselves a number of questions, not just for today's text, but really in general. And there are four common questions especially that help us understand the biblical text to its fullest degree. So we ask ourselves things like, what is the historical context? I mean, what's going on behind the reading that we're sharing? Number two, why did the gospel writer even put this in? There's lots of things the gospel writer could have put in, didn't put in. Why did this account make it? For example, in the gospel of Luke, it doesn't share anything of what we just heard here this morning. It all comes from the gospel of Matthew. Why is that the case? We ask ourselves, what does this story teach us about ourselves And most importantly, we want to be asking, and what does this story teach us about God? And again, those are great questions to be asking for any text, but we're going to use those questions as our guide as we gather here this morning. So what I want to ask you to do, we're going to start with the first of those questions. We're really going to start where the text starts today, and that's with the historical context. So if you have not done it already, please grab your Bibles and open up with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verse 1. Matthew is a pretty easy book to find. It is the first book in the New Testament, the very first one, and we're going to chapter 2, so near the beginning of the book, verse 1, and here's what it says. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. So right off the bat, we are immediately hearing about this guy, King Herod. Now, you would know it was not easy to take pictures of folks in that time. They didn't have recording devices. But we do have an idea of what Herod actually looked like. They created busts of people. And so we can put that up and you kind of get an idea of what he looked like if we're able to put that up there. And you'll get a, start to get a sense of what he actually looked like, and which is kind of a nice thing to picture as we're going through this. And while you're picturing who he might be, he was a gentleman, a guy who ruled for 33 years, and he ruled with great power, and he ruled with great might, and he wanted to prove to the world he was somebody. He wanted to prove to the world he was a significant dude. <laughs> he wanted to prove to the world that he deserved to be the king and that the world should pay attention to him. In fact, leading the Jewish people, being the appointed king over them, he even wanted to prove he was the long-awaited Messiah, the one that they had been waiting for. Because he knew that in their prophecies, they were looking for a messianic king. He wanted to be that king. Now, you can imagine this was a problem for the Jews when they heard that, because even though Herod was nominally Jewish by faith, he was absolutely not Jewish by nationality. In fact, he was born an Edomite, and he was appointed by the Romans to rule over the Jews. So the Jews were like, you are absolutely not the Messiah. You're not even one of us. But Herod still wanted to be that king. He wanted to prove that he deserved to be king. 
So there was always this tension between the Jews who saw him trying to be their king while at the same time knowing he was really just a puppet of the Roman Empire. And there was always this tension that was going on between the two. And so Herod did some things to try to win their favor. In fact, one of the things he did that Jews were somewhat grateful for is he rebuilt the temple. He rebuilt a magnificent temple. And again, the Jews would have been pleased with that. But then here was the problem. Whenever they came to this temple that had been rebuilt, one of the things that Herod did is he put on the gates going into the temple a picture or the the golden eagle, which was a symbol of the Roman Empire. So you couldn't even go into the temple, which they were glad it was there, but you couldn't even go into the temple without being reminded, oh, wait a minute, the Romans, Herod built this. And so again, there was this friction that was going on. So on the one hand, the Jews were grateful for the efforts of Herod, but they were also repelled to have to go into something the Romans had built. And again, this symbolized the tension in their relationship. Now, Herod, even though he did some things to reach out to the Jews, truthfully, he spent a lot more effort on himself. He wanted to look good. He wanted to be seen as being important. So he did a lot of spectacular things that drew attention to him. For example, there was a place called Masada. It overlooks the Dead Sea. It was a man-made mountain and a man-made plateau. And there, Herod, in the middle of the desert, built a great big giant swimming pool. So think about that for just a moment. Here he builds a palace with a huge swimming pool on the top of a human-made mountain. Why would he do that? To prove he could do it. I mean, to prove that he was somebody out in the desert building a pool. I mean, it's kind of crazy, but it was sort of like, look what he has the ability to do. And then he also built for himself a palace that was even higher than the city of Bethlehem. Because remember, Bethlehem was known and prophesied that the Messianic king was going to come out of Bethlehem. So here's what Herod decided. He had to be bigger. He had to be higher than any king that was going to come out of Bethlehem. So what he did is he had another man-made mountain built, and it was called the Herodium. And on the top of this man-made mountain, again, he had a palace built. And this wasn't just any palace. It included a home theater for 900 of his closest friends. I'm always curious what that means, because at that time, they wouldn't have watched movies like you and I did, but they had a space carved out for 900 of his closest friends. And the pool that he built there wasn't just any pool. It was the size of three Olympic-sized pools. And it was all built 350 feet in the air. I mean, it was higher than the Great Pyramid in Giza in Egypt. Why in the world is he doing that? Because he wanted to tower over literally the city of Bethlehem from which a king was supposed to come, as if to say, I'm higher than any king that's going to come out of this place. I'm more important than any king you've ever had. I'm even higher than the great King David that you celebrate, you Jews. Now, what kind of person does this? Obviously, an insecure one. Someone trying to make up for the insecurity they feel within themselves. There's an emptiness and a fear that Herod had that he had to do everything he could on the outside to look as good as he possibly could. And his insecurity, it wasn't just demonstrated in the amazing things he tried to build. It was also demonstrated in who he chose to relate his life with and to. So one of the things that he did is he married the right people. Specifically, Herod married a woman named Miriam. She was the granddaughter of a Jewish king. So he married literally into a great family. Now, Herod had 10 wives, 10, and Miriam was his favorite. He loved her very, very much, but there was a problem with Miriam. She was of royal descent. She had royal Jewish blood flowing through her. So what did that mean for Herod? It meant she was a threat to him. So he loved her, but she's a threat. So first he had her uncle killed. 
than her brother. And then even though he loved her, he had her killed and he even had their sons killed because they would have carried that same royal Jewish blood. This is the type of man that Herod was. And it was actually said that it was safer to be a pig in Herod's house than one of his own sons. So despite his great building projects, really what Herod is most known for is his insecurity and being a fearful king who did awful things to other people out of his fear and out of his insecurity. That is the historical context that we're looking at and considering as Jesus comes into the picture here this morning. So keep that in mind as we continue in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. This is what's going on. Magi came from the east of Jerusalem and they asked, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. Disturbed. He wasn't excited. He didn't celebrate. He was disturbed. I mean, how did this sound to Herod? Why was he so disturbed and frightened? Why was he not celebrating? He is almost 70 years old at this point now. And after all those years, after all those decades of insecurities, nothing was going to change for him right now. So here he is, almost 70, and he is still going to make sure that whatever newborn king comes into the picture is not going to have any chance of survival at all, not on his watch. So what did he do? We hear Matthew chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Then Herod called the Magi secretly, and he found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He, said, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now, that was a lie. Remember, Herod had been disturbed. He wasn't celebrating Jesus' arrival. He didn't like it at all. He was lying. He wanted, he wanted Jesus dead. So then we hear this, continuing in Matthew chapter 2, now verse 12. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they, the Magi, returned to their country by another route. Now, you can imagine, Herod had had a plan. Somehow it was foiled. The the Magi don't come back to him. I mean, he is ticked. This angered him. He is furious. So in his anger, he sends his troops to Bethlehem, and he says to them, I want you to go to Bethlehem. I want you to find young boys, two years old or under, and I want you to slaughter them. I want you to kill them. I want them gone. And that is literally what this event has come to be called, the slaughter of the innocents. Now, we're going to put up a picture that kind of just gives you an artist picture idea of what that looked like. We cannot be any more graphic than this. I mean, it would be too much to be able to to show you more. But literally think about boys two years old and under being murdered. Now, at that time, there were probably 500 to 1,000 residents in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was not a mega big place. It wasn't a mega city of any kind. So if you do the natural demographics, we're probably talking about two to three dozen boys age two and under who would have been killed. Now, this is disturbing stuff. And what it does is it shows us and reminds us how evil, how broken our world can be. Now, again, at this point, you might be thinking, well, that's not really getting me in the Christmas spirit. What, I mean, what is this all about? One of the things that we're reminded of is that this is the kind of world that Jesus came into. Jesus, in his great love, was willing to come into this evilness and brokenness on our behalf. And so at Christmas, we see Jesus entered a broken, evil, and hurting world. 
And one of the things that history shows us is that over and over and over again, those who are rulers who are afraid, they will kill or get rid of or eliminate anyone that they think is a threat to them, even if it's their own families. Now, remember, it's the gospel of Matthew that shares this with us, not the gospel of Luke. The reason for that is Matthew is writing to Israelite people, to Jewish people, to God's people. Luke writes to Gentiles, those who originally were not really considered God's people. So when Matthew is writing, one of the things he wants to do, he wants to always lift up the importance of the Old Testament. He wants to remind God's people that what is happening now is a fruition of what was shared in the Old Testament. So part of what Matthew wants to do, he wants to point out a parallel to you and I that happened 1,300 years earlier, or more specifically to his own readers, something that happened 1,300 years earlier. And the parallel was for someone that we've probably heard of to a guy named Moses. Now, Moses was born in Egypt, and you might remember that in Egypt, the Israelites, God's people were slaves, and there was a ruler named Pharaoh, and there came a time when Pharaoh also decided, you know what, there are just too many of you Jews out there. So Pharaoh instructed the midwives to throw the babies of the Hebrew women into the Nile River. So part of what Matthew wants to do is he wants to remind us, he wants to remind his readers to understand that in Jesus, there is one like Moses, but someone even greater than Moses who comes. And again, there are these parallels between the two. Just like Moses was saved by the courageous acts of his parents from certain death at the hands of a king, Jesus was saved by courageous acts of his parents from death at the hands of a king. Remember, Moses was in Egypt. Now Jesus is going to be in Egypt. They both come out of Egypt to lead again God's people and lead them to a promised land of sorts. And in sharing this, what Matthew is reminding us is that as great as Moses was, Jesus is going to be even greater. And Matthew wants to make sure we don't miss that. So when we think about this, I mean, it's a terrible story. It's an awful story. What does this story mean for you and I today? And especially at Christmas. One of the things that this story helps us to realize, and we may not want to admit it, but there is truth to this. There's a little bit, at least, of Herod in every single one of us. We all struggle with our own insecurities, our own fears. We often feel the need that we have to be the star. And that's where the backbiting and the gossip often begins. We cannot affirm others who might take away the glory coming to us. God built us with a fear mechanism within us, and normally that is a good thing. It's that flight or fright response kind of thing, or you know, fight them or flee away. And the reason for that is for self-preservation. We're designed that way so that in the face of danger, there's a way for us to survive one way or the other. But the problem that arises is that when our fear mechanism gets too connected and intertwined with our sin mechanism, awful things start to happen. So instead of protecting others, we end up hurting others. Again, think of Herod killing his very own family. And we do the same thing. Now, we don't, maybe don't kill our, our families, thankfully. But in our own insecurities, we hurt other people. We hurt other people as individuals when we start to categorize them as those people or them. Maybe you've heard of the NIMBY syndrome, not in my backyard. We don't want those people living by us. We don't want them in our neighborhood. It'll make our property value come down. And in our fear, we start to categorize other people. And in that process, we hurt them and we tear them down. We don't do that just on an individual level. We do this on a national level as well. Most wars start because of our own national insecurities and fears that tend to get blown out of proportion. For example, those of you who are history buffs, I want to invite you to think to a number of years ago to the Cold War between our country and the Soviet Union. And I want to be very clear. Those fears were real. 
But again, we tend in our fear to blow things out of proportion. For example, exactly how many, how many nuclear warheads do you need to blow away your enemy? Well, a number of years ago, we thought the answer must be around 70,000 because that's how many nuclear warheads we created. Now, with 70,000 warheads, that would destroy every single inch of space in the Soviet Union, along with everyone who lived there, 20 to 30 times over. So killing them once was not enough. We had to do it 20 to 30 times over. Now, today, we still have around 5,000. And interestingly, to build those warheads and then the systems to get them into place cost in today's dollars about $8.1 trillion dollars. Think what could have been done with that money. Fear causes us to blow things out of proportion. And again, I'm not saying there wasn't fear. I'm not saying there weren't issues to be dealt with. I'm saying that our fear causes us to blow things out of proportion, not only, again, as a nation, but in our own lives as well. And so we struggle with how to deal with our fear. And yet Scripture teaches us something very different. In fact, Scripture says in 1 John 4, verse 18, it says, perfect love drives out fear. So church, as Jesus followers, let me say this as absolute clearly as I can. We are called as followers of Jesus Christ to overcome our fears with love, not with hate, which means we have to ask ourselves, what are my insecurities? What do I struggle with? What am I afraid of? And will I choose to love those who cause me to be afraid? Now, when we think about this, it's interesting because in any society or really any group, there's, there's really two groups of people, part of our demographics, who kind of rise to the top, who oftentimes tend to use fear tactics in what they do. And I just want to invite you to think for a second in your own mind, who might they be? Like in our society, who are two groups that commonly use fear to get what they want? And I would unfortunately have to say one of those groups, I think a lot of time is pastors. Pastors are always putting out scare tactics to try to get people to do what they want. And a lot of times, instead of inviting people to know Jesus through love, we try to scare people to know Jesus by sharing with them they're you know, absolutely going to hell unless they do this and this and this and this. And there are you know, biblical truths in those things, but the, the motivator is fear. When in reality, God calls us to love and to share and to reach others in love. And so lots of times we use fear as a motivator. And you know the other group probably because we've just come through a season where it was heavy, and that is with politicians. And so at a national level and at a state level, we see this all the time. We, we try to use fear to say, vote for me because the other one is going to lead to awful, horrible, scary things. And this is for all candidates. I want to be clear on that. Uh, every single candidate does that. In fact, it was interesting. You probably saw the same thing. Every time a commercial would come up for one candidate against the other, I never saw one commercial that was like, I, choose, I asked you to respectfully think of my opponent and here are the things that they can do. And now I disagree with them. And here's why. That's not how it works. Those commercials come up with the scary, like, horror movie background and, like, the flashing red letters. Why is that? Because we're, they want to be, us to be scared and then vote for them and not their opponent. It's just what we human beings do. So we all have fear that we deal with. Now, we're not the only ones dealing with fear. If you continue with me, Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, we hear a little bit more related to fear. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt. Can you imagine this? I mean, think for just a moment You've just had a newborn baby, 
And in the middle of the night, you are shaken awake and saying, you've got to go now. There are people coming to kill you. In fact, the most powerful man in this region is sending people right now to come and kill your child. Now, it is scary to have a newborn in the, me- the best of circumstances. I remember when our daughter, Alex, who's our firstborn, was born. I, I'm not joking. We drove out of the hospital that day all the way home. I did not go over 10 miles an hour. I mean, she was strapped in with about 32 seat belts and 25 blankets. I mean, I, I, just, I was scared out of my mind. Now, that was in a good situation. Here are Mary and Joseph. And lest we forget, Joseph was probably about 16, and Mary, 13, 14, 15, maybe 16. I mean, by today's standards, young, almost children. And they've had this newborn child and they're awakened in the middle of the night saying, you have got to run for your life. Do you know how scared they must have been? And so they were sent to Egypt, which was about a 250 mile walk in the desert. And how did they travel? I mean, well, lots of times you see the nice picture we put up, Mary on the, on the donkey and maybe Joseph walking. And maybe that's how they did. Maybe they both had to walk. But the point is, whatever they could grab, whatever they could put on their back or hold in their hands, that's how they went. And they went traipsing through the desert. It probably took them about 30 days to get from Bethlehem to Egypt out of fear that their child would not be killed. Again, mostly through the desert. Now, you and I might have a hard time picturing that. I mean, we can sort of picture that and be like, well, that's tough. That's rough. But let me give you a parallel that better describes what's going on to something in our own world today that might have us, help us have a better understanding. I want to put in your mind the image of current day refugees. There are still many refugees who have to flee at night also because of the opposing force of the tribal leader or the civil war in their country or somebody who's also coming after them. In fact, according to the United Nations Commission on Refugees, there are about 15 million people who've had to flee their country and go to another country. And then on top of that, there's another 27 million people who had to flee their homes in their own country and go to another part of the same country. So in places like the Congo or Malawi or Syria, we know that today children are still killed by tribal leaders. These are real stories, just like it might have happened for Jesus. So when you see the pictures of refugee children, be reminded that could have been Christ himself. It was Christ himself. Or again, think of a young woman holding her son and realizing this could have been Mary holding Jesus. It was Mary holding Jesus. Now, again, we may not feel this so much because it's not our reality, but it is the reality of many people in our world on a daily basis. They live in fear of the violence that might happen to them. And that was the experience of Jesus himself. I don't know if you know, there's a college in Bethlehem, a Bible college, and it acts a lot like our seminaries here in the United States. And that is they prepare Palestinian Christians to be pastors in the West Bank area, to start churches in the surrounding area, to be pastors, those kinds of things. Folks were talking with the president and the dean of the school, and they were asking them this question. They said, when you, president and the dean of the school, when you read the Christmas story, how do you hear this story? I mean, here we are right here in Bethlehem. How do you hear it when that scripture, when that text is read? Do you know what the president of the Bible college said in Bethlehem? He said this, for us, for our people, when we hear and read the Christmas story in scripture, this account of Herod and Joseph and Mary and Jesus fleeing for their lives is the most important of all the Christmas stories. Because many of our people, their parents and their grandparents, have lived in refugee camps. 
And you know what this story tells them? It tells them that Jesus walked in their shoes, that God came to earth and that this God in Jesus knows their pain, knows their fear, and knows their darkness because he lived it too. That means this God understands their pain and understands their hurt no matter how dark, no matter how heavy it might be. This Jesus knows their pain. And there is deep power in that. We know that it makes such a difference when we are in our darkest times to know that we are not alone. And this God comes alongside us when life is most dark and most difficult. Jesus knows our pain and there's power in that. So often when you and I come to the Christian faith, we pray to God, Lord, please make things simple. Please take away the pain in my life. Please take away the struggles in my life. We want God to fix all of the problems. And that tends to be our mindset. And don't get me wrong, we should pray. And of course, we want God to be with us in whatever struggles we're dealing with. But a lot of times that's as far as we go. And we say, God, take away my pain, take away my struggles. And then when that doesn't happen, we get irritated and say, well, I tried that, didn't work. I gave Christianity a shot, but God didn't do what I wanted, and so off we go. It's like it's some kind of program to try out and take or discard as we wish, or like it's some kind of form of magic that when we follow Jesus, suddenly our life is going to be on easy street. But you and I know that is not how it works. We have lived long enough to know that we live in a world that is broken and sinful and evil. We live in a world where you and I have the capacity to do awful things to each other, and sometimes bad things happen. We're not just exempt from those things because we happen to be followers of Jesus Christ In fact, when we give our full allegiance to Christ, our lives might even become more difficult rather than less. How can we ever think that it's the essence of the Christian faith that suddenly our life will be on easy street if I just start following Jesus, that I'll suddenly be exempt from all levels of pain? How can we ever think that the gospel is that kind of a promise that we will, if we become a Christian, that all will be well when the very founder of our faith was sought after as a baby to be murdered And then again, at age 33, he died on a Roman cross as a criminal and then come and say, but Lord, don't let me suffer at all. Does that sound like the kind of faith that says everything's going to be okay if you just trust in Jesus and follow him? But lest that be worrisome to us, that there's only pain and struggle. What we celebrate in this story and what we must hear and understand is this. That God sent his only son on our behalf, not only to be the answer to our sinful brokenness, but to experience what you and I do. To know our pain, to know firsthand the brokenness of our world, to know what it means to walk in our shoes. And we celebrate that promise and we hold on to that promise because that means God may not fix everything on this side of eternity, but we know eventually God will. And through that, until we get to that point, in the meantime, God knows every single thing that you and I are struggling with and every single thing that we're going through. And he walks through it with us. And that is a good and holy and wonderful thing because none of us want to be left alone. This is a God who loves us so much. There was nothing he was not willing to do. This is a God who was willing to walk through any darkness, any hell that you and I do so that he would know exactly what we're going through. This God who says, I walked with Mary and Joseph. I was carried by them to this refugee camp in Egypt. I walked through those darkest moments with them, and I walked through those darkest moments with you. I will never leave you. I will never, ever forsake you. And that should mean a great, great deal to us. In fact, it should make all the difference in the world. 
because it means we don't ever have to truly be alone. There is one who knows every single thing that we are going through. In fact, Jesus, God, shares directly with us this truth and this reality. Isaiah 43, 2. When you pass through the waters, church, I'll be with you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Hebrews 13, 5. God has said, never will I leave you. Never, ever will I forsake you. And so because of these promises, we know that we do not need to be afraid when we go through life's darkest times because this God can come and meet us in the midst of that pain and bring redemption from it. That's what this Christmas story is about. Jesus with us. One of the most helpful reminders that we're given at this time of the year, one of the titles that's given to describe Jesus, and I love the title, is Emmanuel. And Emmanuel literally means God with us us, which gives us hope. So today, no matter where we are, I'm sure there's some great blessings in our lives, and I hope we've been giving thanks for those, but I trust that there's probably also some places of struggle and darkness, and if that is the case for us, then know this this day. This God meets us in that darkness and walks with us. This God says, never will I leave you, never, ever will I forsake you, and that should give us So this day, let us meet and embrace this God who walks with us in life's greatest joys and life's greatest struggles. And may that cause us to say, Merry Christmas. Amen.